Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Daniel. Begin our study this morning of the book of Daniel, and I'm going to read only the first seven verses of Daniel chapter 1. You find that on page 1370, 1370, the book of Daniel. Let us hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So far the reading of God's holy word. Do you ever wonder if God really loves you? You've heard it said many times that he does, but the circumstances of your life seem to contradict that. If he loves me, why am I suffering? Why do I experience chronic pain? If he loves me, why am I financially burdened? Why doesn't he repair the strained relationships in my life? Why doesn't he heal my sick child? If he loves me, why am I struggling at school? Why do I carry so many burdens? I've always been taught that all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. But if he's really a loving father, why is my husband suffering from Alzheimer's? We've been happily married for 60 years, and now he doesn't even recognize me or know my name. Why, Lord? Why? The Bible describes God as being loving and kind. It also describes him as being all-sovereign and powerful. How do these two fit together? Does he really care about me? Or does he really have the power to help me? If he loves me, and if he has the power to release me from my afflictions, why doesn't he do it? 
Brothers and sisters, we don't always know why God allows pain in our lives. Sometimes there are no easy answers. But we do know from Scripture that regardless of what we face, God does have a purpose for it. Yes, even when the bottom falls out, He works all things for the good of His people and the glory of His name. In this Old Testament prophecy of Daniel, we see God's people broken, oppressed, hurting, and driven from the land. When you go back to the Old Testament books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, you hear the repeated promise to Israel, I'm going to drive out the nations from before you. I will drive out all your enemies. But here in Daniel, it is God's people who are driven out. Their enemies have triumphed over them. The bottom has fallen out. Everything has gone south. This morning from Daniel 1, verses 1 through 7, I want us to ponder two things. First, their situation. And second, their indoctrination. Their situation and their indoctrination. The book of Daniel begins by describing the historical situation in which these chapters took place. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Towards the end of the 7th century and the beginning of the 6th century BC, the Babylonian Empire became a mighty force in the ancient Near East. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the southern kingdom of Judah was attacked three times. The first invasion took place in the year 605 BC, about 100 years after the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to the Assyrians. The second invasion occurred in 597, and the third invasion took place in 586, when Jerusalem was completely destroyed and the inhabitants of the land were deported to Babylon. The third invasion in 586 is the one that usually sticks in our minds, right? That is when the house of the Lord was burned to the ground and the wall around Jerusalem was broken down. Jerusalem was reduced to a heap of rubble and ashes. The invasion of Jerusalem recorded here in Daniel 1 was not the third, but the first of these three invasions. Nebuchadnezzar took the city and led a group of captives back to Babylon among this first group of captives was Daniel and his three companions. Now, brothers and sisters, if you look at the opening two verses of this book, you will notice some rather significant points. In the first place, the author describes the siege of Jerusalem from two different perspectives. He describes it in terms of secular history in verse 1, and in terms of divine providence in verse 2. You see that? The first verse reads like a history book or a newspaper article. It states the plain facts as they are perceived from man's perspective. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, if you were a historian, you could take verse 1. Research the history of Babylon and Judah and write a paper on the reason for Judah's collapse and Babylon's victory. 
You could perhaps trace the reasons for Babylon's success and Judah's failure and list the contributing factors for the advancement of the former and the decline of the latter. Historians sometimes do that. They analyze certain historical events in order to determine why they took the course that they did. While there is certainly a place for historical investigation and analysis, Verse 2 takes us beyond the actions of men in history to the higher activity of God in history. Look with me to verse 2. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hands. The defeat of Jerusalem was not merely due to Babylon's superior military strength. It was the Lord who himself defeated his own people. No doubt the Babylonians thought that in the conquest of Jerusalem, they had defeated Israel's God. Jerusalem's collapse was proof of Nebuchadnezzar's superiority and the superiority of his gods. Nebuchadnezzar believed that he was greater than Yahweh. Verse 2 says that he even carried some of the articles of the house of God into the land of Shinar where he placed them into the treasure house of his God. Nebuchadnezzar appeared to be sovereign. He appeared to be greater than the Lord of Israel. The author of this book, however, shows us the real facts. Nebuchadnezzar was only an instrument in the hands of God which he used to judge his own people for their sins. Nebuchadnezzar could not so much as breathe apart from the sovereign will of God. Ultimately, it was not Nebuchadnezzar who determined the destiny of Judah. It was the Lord himself. The entire book of Daniel powerfully impresses upon us that God is in control of everything. It loudly declares, our God reigns. Isn't that also an important message for us today? In the chaos and instability of our world, we need to know that our God is on the throne. World leaders may flex their muscles. Dictators may assert their authority. Presidents and prime ministers may make their boasts and pursue their greedy goals. But in the midst of it all, our God reigns. Keep that in mind as you watch the evening news. When you open the morning newspaper, let it comfort your heart. Yes, there are disturbing things in our world to be sure, but ultimately, nothing escapes God's attention and nothing can thwart his plans. The Lord was directing the events of Daniel's world, and he is still directing every ruler, every politician, every president, every prime minister and nation today. But now perhaps you wonder, how did the author know that it was the Lord? Was it divinely revealed to him? Or did he just reason that since the Lord is ruler of all things, he must also be in control of this situation? How did the author know that this tragedy was in the hands of the Lord? I believe the answer is this. 
He knew the prophetic word. He knew the prophetic word. During the reign of Hezekiah, the prophet Isaiah said in the 39th chapter, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The Lord had predicted through the prophet Isaiah that these things would take place. But already long before the prophet Isaiah, the Lord had set forth his warning to covenant breakers. The invasion of Jerusalem was a direct fulfillment of the promise God made in his covenant with Moses. 800 years before the siege of Jerusalem, the Lord said, If you do not serve the Lord your God, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you do not understand. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down. The Lord is always faithful to His Word. He is faithful in blessing, but He is also faithful in chastening and punishing. The invasion of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and its terrible consequences was undeniable proof that God is faithful to His promise. He is faithful in His covenant blessings, but He's also faithful in His covenant wrath. 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 5 says this, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did what? Evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Because Judah was living in sin, the author of this book understood that it was the Lord himself who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 2 is thus written in light of his knowledge of the prophetic word. Now congregation, imagine what it must have been like for the people of Judah. Bring yourself back there for a moment. One day you're enjoying your freedom, enjoying your family, and discussing the future with your children. But the next day you hear the boots of the Babylonian soldiers marching up your street. You hear them barking orders and pushing people around. The laughter of your family turns to screams of, of terror as some of your children are dragged off. Families are broken up. Lives are shattered. Homes are devastated. Jerusalem, the holy city, is overrun by pagan Babylonian soldiers, brutal, godless men. And some of the articles of the great temple are carted off. And why did it all happen? Were they not his chosen people? How could God allow pagan Babylonians to trample the sons of Abraham? Because so many in Judah had forsaken their God, fallen into idolatry, and became morally degenerate. 
Jehoiakim did evil in the sight of the Lord, he undoubtedly thought that it was progress. He thought it would benefit him some way. Who needs the old ways? Those, those ancient writings are obsolete. But Jehoiakim learned the hard way that those who forsake the Lord will not prosper for long. He was bound in bronze fetters, and Nebuchadnezzar carried him off to Babylon in fulfillment of the prophetic word. When they first heard the rumble of chariots, some of the people of Judah may have thought, where is God? Where is God? How could he do this to us? How could he allow all this suffering and pain? How could he allow his own house to be defiled? How could a godless king enter the holy temple of God, steal the sacred vessels, and put them in the temple of his God, thereby declaring the superiority of his God? How could Yahweh allow his holy name to be disgraced like this? Brothers and sisters, the suffering and humiliation in Judah was not because Yahweh was unloving or not because he was powerless. It was because of their own failure to heed the word, to cherish the gospel promises, and to walk in his ways. Dear friends, how do we cope with tragedy in our lives? How do we cope with tragedy in our lives? Some of you may have walked through those doors this morning carrying a heavy burden. Maybe something's looming before you that at this moment appears to be dark and difficult. How do you deal with it? I would not want to suggest for a moment that all suffering is the result of personal sin. Job's friends made that mistake and they proved to be miserable comforters. No, we should not quickly conclude that a person's suffering is the direct consequence of his own transgressions. But every trial is certainly an opportunity to consider, what am I doing with the gospel? Am I resting in my Savior? And how can this pain bring me closer to Him? How can it be used for my sanctification? In the midst of challenging and agonizing circumstances, we need to remember that our God is Lord of history. He not only designs the pleasant things in our lives, but he also orchestrates the disasters. The dark and difficult situation in your life has not come upon you by chance. Knowing that God is directing the events in our lives, we ought to cry out to him in times of tragedy, saying, Lord, use this to draw me near to you. Use this to make me more like your son. Teach me, mold me, refine me, burn away the dross. Draw me into closer fellowship with my Savior. Lord, I don't understand all the reasons for this. But if there are things for which I need to repent, help me to repent. If there are areas in my life that need to change, help me to walk in your ways. Help me to change. 
It created me a clean heart, a trusting spirit, an unshakable confidence that you are both loving and sovereign. Help me each day again to find my hope and refuge at the cross. So that's point number one, their situation. They were troubled, wounded, humiliated, and in desperate need of comfort and divine mercy. If that describes any of you this morning, I urge you to open your Bible, read of Christ, believe His promises, commit your ways to Him, walk in His ways, and pray that He will refine you in the midst of bitter providences. Point number two, their indoctrination, their situation, and their indoctrination. I'm sure some of you clearly remember standing on the front steps of your college or university for the very first time. Perhaps the building before you looked rather imposing. You wondered what you were going to face inside those doors. You were somewhat nervous as you pondered the things that you were going to be taught in the classrooms. How would you, as a Christian, remain faithful while living in a setting that was totally foreign to most of what you believe? How would you remain true to God when your professors taught so many things that were contrary and perhaps even hostile to the Christian faith? A few years ago, some alarming statistics were published regarding the number of young people who were raised in Christian homes and taught in Christian churches but abandoned the Christian faith in college or university. The numbers were extremely disturbing. The study revealed that 80% of teens abandoned the faith in their college years. Some of their professors ridiculed the Bible, scorned the cross, teach evolution as fact, and with their persuasive words and scholarly arguments, lead many young people astray. They come home and they say, Dad, Mom, the Bible's just an old book with errors and contradictions and antiquated views of the universe. It's irrelevant in our modern, scientific, enlightened world. I don't need the Bible. Sorry, mom and dad, but I'm moving on to better things. Don't expect me to get up with you on Sunday morning. I'm done with church, done with those old psalms and hymns. I'm, I'm done with that ancient book. Well, congregation, the danger is not only for young people in colleges and universities. No matter who you are, or how old we are, we have to consider the question, how can I live my life in this university, in this factory, in this office, in this senior's home, in this community, in a way that honors the Lord? How can I survive in a culture that has become so far removed from biblical values? Your faith is constantly tested. You find yourself in situations in which you are tempted to compromise biblical teaching, tempted to take the easy road, the one that the majority is traveling. We have a natural tendency to simply float with the current, 
to go with the crowd, to embrace what is popular and socially acceptable. So often we desire the approval of people rather than the approval of God. But congregation, the more we compromise, the less we are used of God for the building of His church, the advancement of His kingdom, and the glory of His name. The more we compromise, the less effective our testimony to the world becomes. And we forfeit the blessing of the nearness of God and the satisfaction of being used in His service. It's not easy living in a secular society in which the absolutes of God's Word are so often ignored or or even scorned. But God does not promise you an easy life or a smoothly paved road. He calls you to loving obedience and faithfulness regardless of the situation in which you find yourself. In the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, some of the people of Israel found themselves in the midst of a thoroughly man-centered environment. In Nebuchadnezzar's day, Babylon was what we might call a secular humanist society. It gloried in man and his accomplishments. The attitude of Babylon is summed up in the words of its king in the fourth chapter. You remember those words? You recall what Nebuchadnezzar said? Is this not great Babylon which I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? I, my. Babylon was man-centered, proud. It was a humanistic society. They gloried in man. And it was here that a certain young Daniel and his friends found themselves. Having subdued Jerusalem, verses 1 and 2, Nebuchadnezzar instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the Israelites and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles to Babylon. He specified, verse 4, that they had to be young men, without blemish, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. In other words, brothers and sisters, he wanted the cream of the crop, the best of the best. While Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man, an arrogant man, he was certainly not lacking in intelligence. He wanted the young men of Judah brought to Babylon for a specific reason. His plan was to educate them in the language, literature, and customs of the Chaldeans to groom them and retrain them in the ways of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar evidently understood the saying, You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Therefore, he chose young, energetic, but impressionable men. He wanted to shape these outstanding young people for his own service. Nebuchadnezzar knew that subduing a nation required more than mere military strength. In order to really subdue the nation, he wanted to retrain their leadership so that he could use them not only in his own palace, but also in his future dealings with Jerusalem. What better men could he have for dealing with Jewish people than the sons of Jerusalem's nobility? Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar wanted these men to be thoroughly indoctrinated into the Babylonian way of life. 
He was determined that these young leaders would learn how to live, think, talk, and conduct themselves like loyal citizens of Babylon. The intention was to largely erase from their minds the remembrance of their former ways. And notice, notice the tactics that Nebuchadnezzar used to achieve his goal. First of all, the obvious. He removed them from their land. He removed them from their land. He did not want them to be influenced in any way by Jewish thought or religion. They were separated from their place of worship, separated from the teaching of the word. They could no longer see the message of the gospel through the temple and its various rituals. The priesthood, the sacrifices, the shedding of blood were all left behind. Signposts to the Messiah, signposts to the Messiah, Jesus Christ could be seen no more. After all, who needs the gospel? Who needs it? Babylon's gospel is all that we need. Babylon is supreme. Babylon is good news. Secondly, having removed them from their land, he enrolled them in a new education system. He enrolled them in a new education system. Instead of being instructed in the Torah, the law of God, Nebuchadnezzar had them instructed in the language and literature of the Chaldeans, verse 4b. It was an education that left the true God entirely out of the picture. He enrolled them in the University of Babylon and paid all their tuition, all their costs. At the University of Babylon, they undoubtedly learned about such things as magic, sorcery, charms, and astrology. They had to study the religion and philosophy of pagans, as some of you do in university. While it was the very best that Babylon had to offer, it was a completely inadequate worldview, one that could stimulate the intellect but never truly satisfy the soul. You see, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Have you ever heard a lecture or an interview, perhaps on the news, with a big-name professor with a Ph.D.? The man sounds very educated, intelligent, and articulate, but when the interview is over, you realize that he has said absolutely nothing that satisfies the soul. He may have impressed his audience with his brilliance, but he has left God out of the picture entirely. And the words of Solomon come to mind, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's how these young men must have felt in the University of Babylon. Some of their education was perhaps practical and profitable and useful to them in years to come. They may have benefited. Daniel may have benefited to some degree from this education in the years to come. But with respect to the age-old questions of origin, meaning, purpose, and destiny, they could identify with Solomon. All is vanity and a grasping for the wind. Thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar also tried to lure them into an acceptance of Babylonian ways through the enjoyment of the pleasures of life. 
through the enjoyment of the pleasures of life. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. The young men were to be given the finest delicacies of food the city of Babylon could provide. They would be seduced through the pleasures of Babylon to accept their new position. High living, good times, whining, dining, and comfort would wean them away from their commitment to Jerusalem and its God. The good life, it could hardly get better than this. And then fourthly, Not only did he remove them from their land, enroll them in a new education system, and provide them with the pleasures of life, but he also altered the young men's names. He also altered the young men's names. Look with me, please, to verses 6 and 7. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names, He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. The name change is obviously very significant. The Jewish names of these four men would have been to them a constant reminder of their origin and religious roots. You see, each of the Hebrew names contained a name of God, and each of them had a spiritual meaning. Daniel and Mishael each contained the name El, which means God. Daniel means God is my judge, and Mishael means who is like God. The other two names, Hananiah and Azariah, both contained a shortened form of the name Yahweh, the covenant name for God. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. And Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. You can see how the names of these men would have been a reminder to them of their history and also a reminder to remain faithful to Israel's God. The new names, the new names that were assigned to them were a direct challenge to their faith. Each of the new names contained a reference to one of the false gods of Babylon. They all incorporated the names of Babylonian deities. Belteshazzar, Bel protects his life. Shadrach, the command of Aku, the moon god. Meshach, who is like Aku, Abednego, servant of Nebo. You see what's going on here? By giving them these names, Nebuchadnezzar was suggesting that these men, who had once been servants of Israel's God, were now the servants of the gods of Babylon. Those who had once worshipped and served Yahweh would now be expected to worship and serve the Babylonian deities, who were, after all, supreme. He wanted them to think of themselves as citizens of Babylon rather than citizens of Jerusalem. If they began to think like Babylonians, then perhaps they would begin to live like Babylonians. So Nebuchadnezzar removed them from their land, 
enrolled them in a new education system, provided them with all the pleasures of life, and gave them a new identity. It was all part of an indoctrination process designed to assimilate them into Babylonian culture, religion, and values. They should consider themselves privileged to be in such a prominent position, honored. Now, brothers and sisters, what you need to understand is that Babylon and Jerusalem throughout Scripture are symbols of two opposite and opposing loyalties. Two opposite and opposing loyalties. Babylon represents the city of man, and Jerusalem represents what Augustine called the city of God. Babylon represents the society of this world, and Jerusalem represents the society of God. The indoctrination process of the young men was therefore much more significant than a mere shifting of national loyalties. We need to recognize that behind the actions of Nebuchadnezzar is the activity of Satan and the powers of darkness and the conflict between darkness and light. Some of the questions with which Daniel and his three friends were faced were these. Will I live for the city of God or the city of man? Will I live by God's standard or man's? Will I be absorbed into man's system or will I stand by God's unchanging and eternal truth? Will I cling to the messianic promises or will I forsake them? Will I love, trust, and serve Yahweh or will I embrace my new name and all that it represents? In congregation, these are questions that you ought to consider as well. Perhaps you're not faced with the same indoctrination process as Daniel and his friends, but Satan also wants you to be swallowed up by the city of man. He will do all that he can to remove you from the place of worship and the fellowship of God's people. He will try to alter your thinking through corrupt education, advertising, and man-centered media. He will try to lead you away from the city of God through the comforts and pleasures of this life. And he will try to get you to identify with the false gods of the world rather than the true and living God of heaven and earth. The spiritual conflict that Daniel and his companions faced is similar to the spiritual conflict that you also face today. Congregation and young people, will you stand by the principles of the city of God or will you compromise and be absorbed into the city of man? We will consider next week, the Lord willing, how Daniel and his friends responded. But I want to ask each one of you today, where is your loyalty? Where is your heart? Are you drawn to the attractions of the here and now, the visible and physical, 
or are you devoted to the one who alone can satisfy your hunger and quench your thirst? The apostle said in Colossians chapter 3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This life and the kingdoms of this world may contain both pains and pleasures, both trials and temptations, but the eternal kingdom of Christ will be a place of perfect peace, rest, and joy. The songwriter said, Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Are you a child of Zion? Are you a child of Zion? Or are you a loyal citizen of Babylon? Christ is infinitely superior to Nebuchadnezzar, and his love never fails. Do you wonder if he loves you? Look to the cross and wonder no more. Let us pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we also feel that conflict between darkness and light, between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Sometimes, Lord, in the midst of this life and in the midst of pain and sorrow and disappointment and tragedy. Lord, sometimes we wonder where you are and we question your love. Will you forgive us? And will you, Lord, mold us and shape, shape us even in the midst of life's tragedies? that we may, Lord, come through the refining fire having been purified. We think, Lord, of Daniel and his companions in the midst of that thoroughly man-centered environment. Man is on the throne. The worship of man. We think, Lord, of how you kept them and preserved them even in the midst of great disappointment and trial. Lord, so we look to you also today that you will sustain us, that regardless of what we may be facing today, that we will remain loyal citizens of Jerusalem, faithful children of Zion, 
Lord, you know each one here this morning. You know those who may have entered these doors carrying a heavy burden, struggling with whatever it might be. We pray that each one of us, Lord, may look to you. We may find our hope in you. And that when we question your love, we may look to the cross. Oh Lord, where there was that profound display of incomprehensible love. And so, Lord, turn our hearts, each one, to you and make us faithful in the midst of uh, this generation when it's so easy and so tempting to be simply absorbed into the world, into the thinking, the worldview, the mindset, the pleasures of the world. Keep us, guard us and our children, that we may continue to be steadfast as children of Zion. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.